We have hope. Hope that things can get better. And they will. You called it Jesse James. Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. Oh, The Bizzle, thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to the third to last episode of Star Wars Rebels Season 1. It's episode 12 or 13, depending on how you are counting. It is called A Call to Action. It is the beginning of the three-episode arc of you know their sort of the Ghost Crew's final attempt to take on the Empire uh, without the Rebellion. And of course, the end result of all this, after torture, death, and suffering, um, wins and losses, is to join the main Rebellion. Obviously, Kanan gets captured and tortured uh, in the episodes following this, but they do get a message out, and it, this begins the notion of, you know... When the rebels have nothing else, they have the truth, and they have to fight propaganda with propaganda. They have to fight fire with fire. So I'm going to get you right into this episode. I get plenty of talking in, and then we have two more in this season, and then Ahsoka comes in, and then we get season two. So welcome to A Call to Action. Queue up your DVDs, Blu-rays, digital files to zero, zero, zero. I'm going to count you down, and here we go. Three, two, one, go. All right, folks, welcome to Call to Action, the first of a three-episode arc to end season one of Star Wars Rebels. Things really pick up after a little up and down in the middle of the season, and for the most part, this is a great way to finish out the uh, the season. Um, so if season two has Ahsoka, the Inquisitors, and, you know, Vader and Maul, and season three has Thrawn, and season four, everything sort of comes together. The end of season one, after a little unevenness, has Tarkin. And Tarkin is fantastic. Now, Tarkin is a very memorable character from the original trilogy, New Hope, obviously. Evacuate in our moment of triumph. Um, we get to meet young Tarkin in the Clone Wars. But for me, Tarkin really takes off in his quote-unquote relationship it, it, in fact, dominance it, it, both to his face and behind the scenes of Krennic in Rogue One, which is seeded in the prequel novel uh, to a certain extent, uh, Catalyst. But the ways in which he, you know, is basically telegraphing to Krennic's face that he's, you know, in full control and eventually disposes of him and takes over the Death Star project at the same time. Now, in this scene, sells even if you'd never met Tarkin before, this scene sells Tarkin's character completely. He he's trashing everybody. He he, you know, the 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 temporary governor, this woman, you know, immediately disarms her and says, "You're worthless." Callus has actually some pride and isn't scared, even while he's you know uh, taking a shot at Callus's. Uh, ineffectual methods and results and here he's you know trashing the inquisitor but what's really brilliant about this performance here uh 
I mean, by by the voice actor Stephen Stanton, but but by Tarkin on screen is you know he talks about the Jedi as you know coming off the pages of fairy tale books and blah blah blah. But then he says, "I knew the Jedi, and now they're all dead." And this, of course, captures both the fascinating but somewhat inconsistent. Um, you know, message about, you know, the Jedi have only been gone a couple decades, but by the time we get to A New Hope, it's like they never existed, and now we're experiencing uh, the same thing, and, you know, the new trilogy, like, Luke Skywalker, you know, in the Force, is it real? Yeah, it's real, all of it, blah, blah, blah. You know, it doesn't really make sense in a technological, uh, advanced technological society that, you know, they would just forget about the powerful Jedi so quickly, uh, especially in the original trilogy coming you know less than 30 years after the prequels when the jedi had been dominant and very present and everyone knew about them for three thousand years but it's because of the imperial propaganda pushed forward by people like vader and tarkin and the emperor even though of course vader and the emperor are of the dark side of the force you know create this myth that the jedi are kind of a fairy tale and never as powerful as people thought and they were easily disposed of and there aren't any left, you know, none of which are true. Um, and so, you know, Tarkin's real, there's lots of adventure stuff in this episode. I won't do a play by play, but you know, Tarkin's real brilliance is the combination of strategic and tactical brilliance, the way he's able to constantly push the failings of the empire on, uh, all levels of his inferiors and subordinates and promote the propaganda that the emperor invader want to promote that the Jedi are no longer around and you know, we're never powerful to begin with and we're corrupt and you know, the empire saving the universe from the evil and the corruption of the Jedi when they were around. It's not even a consistent message to their own people, uh, but the, the the extent of propaganda, which really reflects, you know, our current president Trump's administration, it, it doesn't matter how many contradictions and hypocrisies there are. In fact, you can be, you know, completely hypocritical and contradict yourself in every single statement, but if you just say the same thing with conviction over and over again to an ignorant audience that that wants this message you know you can not only get away with it but you can win at least temporarily and that's why kanan's you know vision of you know the only way to fight this is by reaching out you know verbally uh in fighting fire with fire in terms of propaganda and, and reaching out to the universe with the message is the best thing now ezra takes some convincing especially because he's the one that has to deliver the message uh and you know and kanan has to get captured and kidnapped and so forth um, and eventually Ezra says the message. Ah, now I get it. So they have to take control of the tower so they can broadcast the message, not just to Lothal, but all sorts of planets in the sector and throughout the galaxy, um, which is a great plan. And it is the thing that ultimately, you know, I mean, Hera is already in contact with the Rebellion to some extent, but this is what really gets the, the Rebellion's attention in terms of how valuable the Ghost crew is on so many levels. And of course, this three-episode arc, in addition to being some great adventure stuff, and Tarkin, and the Inquisitor, and Callus, and Torture, and all sorts of stuff. Uh, I can't remember if Vader comes in at the end of season one. Um, but like, it's called Star Wars Rebels. They have to meet up with the Rebellion, and they wait the entire first season to get there. 
And I think that's a strength of the series, even if the episodes are uneven. So, okay. We saw Callus murder one of his own stormtroopers. There's clearly been killing or implied killing already throughout the season. But this is the first time we see brutal murdering of the Empire, by the Empire, of their own people. You know, with decapitations that are off screen, but are very clear to anyone above the age of, you know, four. And so, anyone who says Rebels is just for kids, you know, I mean... There are episodes and moments that are definitely kid moments, but this is absolutely brutal. And after he completely trashed Callus, the governor, and the Inquisitor, the Inquisitor is already working for Tarkin, and this is Tarkin's brilliance. And the other thing about Tarkin, other than getting fleshed out in Rogue One and the materials around Rogue One and his own novel, which I actually haven't read, but I have really burned through a lot of the comics, especially the Vader comics, and the love-hate relationship uh, between him and Vader that is of mutual respect, even while they're competing for the Emperor's affections, is fascinating culminating in vader uh tarkin owing vader a favor and when vader calls in the favor in this in the comic books it's to actually go on a hunt with tarkin's best people like an actual hunt in the wilderness to you know to test himself and ends up in a draw basically i mean vader you know yeah i mean especially draw vader kills all of tarkin's people he kills everyone but tarkin and ends in a draw and, and informs their mutual respect now we know they're bickering up until the destruction of the first death star where tarkin's hubris doesn't allow him to see and accept that they could actually lose that particular battle but like saw guerrera tarkin's one of those great character that we characters that we see in the clone wars here we go with the decapitation Callus is the governor in particular is shocked by this Callus is a little yeah Callus is it, is very surprised just that it happened not that it would happen you know he's already back in himself callus is he shows a brief moment of fear but as i talk about people like tarkin and vader you know it, you're you're going to constantly fail in their eyes if you're not doing a, you know a thousand percent success rate but the the key is not to show fear and to project confidence and they'll give you a couple chances if when, as soon as you show fear and weakness that's when they you know decide that you're disposable i mean everyone's disposable to them but that you're ultimately disposable in the immediate scenario and 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 get you know they get rid of you that's how callus sticks around even with Thrawn, you know uh who suspects him of being a traitor when he is a traitor, whatever we'll get there. Okay. Here's Sabine in her awesome Mandalorian armor. You know, what's hilarious is you know, immediately when you listen to Sabine, you're like, this is a really sexy voice. Now there are plenty of normal looking people, men and women uh, who have sexy voices, but me watching Will Wheaton's tabletop and getting to meet a lot of young voice actresses, a lot of them are very cute and attractive. Actually, you know, not necessarily stunning, but very cute and attractive. Laura Bailey, uh, Tara Platt, um, uh, and so forth, you know, and the men as well. Um, and, uh, Marisha Ray, uh, you know, Alison Hayslip. But when I looked up Tia Sirkar for the first time as Sabine, I couldn't believe how stunning she was. I mean, she plays a very, very, very cute, perky Indian girl in, you know, romantic comedies and on The Good Place on TV and a short-lived ABC show um, with Zach Braff and, and so forth and so on. But she, you know, despite her round face, perky smile and cute personality is a stunning Indian-American woman. And I have been preaching endlessly 
to get her in live action. And now that John Favreau series, which, you know, Favreau is obsessed with the Mandalorians. It seems like the Mandalorians are going to be the big part, if not the central part of his game of Thrones level live action series. And it takes place right after return of the Jedi. When we know Sabine is alive, you got to cast Tia Sirkar as Sabine. It's so perfect. She's so talented, like more than up and coming borderline established. Um, and her performance is absolutely gorgeous, super charismatic, and, and is Sabine. But it's hilarious that she's playing a Mandalorian alien and then, you know, behind the helmet half the time, you know, is great. Is absolutely great. All these characters completely embrace their characters. Yeah. So this is, you know, Ezra's further progression in communicating with am- animals. Yeah, this is great. It's such a win you two bond. Yeah. <laughs> Padawan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sabine likes to give him a hard time about their, you know, you know, almost romantic brother, big brother, little brother relationship. <laughs> Of course, the probe droid they think they've disabled gets the footage. Callus, you know, has to have some at least minor victories. Here it's with the probe droid. And what's great about Tarkin is up until his, uh, you know, ultimate failure with the Death Star. And by the way, the a lot of the Star Wars comics. So the current Vader comics t- take place before episode four after episode three. But a lot of the Star Wars comics take place before four and five, arguably too many. And so, while there's a grudging respect for things Tarkin has accomplished, it's, you know, unavoidable his ultimate failure with with the Death Star, especially after he co-opted it from Krennic, got Galen Erso killed, got Krennic killed, you know, asserted his dominance over Vader, and then Vader got almost everything he wanted by having Tarkin and all his people killed in the Death Star explosion. Of course, one of those officers survived and is sort of a thorn in Vader's side for a while. So, anyways... the way they bring in Tarkin and of course the rebels escape, but they do torture Kanan, you know, the empire gets some minor victories. And of course, Tarkin gets off, Tarkin gets off scot-free because he blames it on everybody else. So the spike and, you know, they talk about slicing, uh, which is hacking. What's with you? This is great. This is the therapist thing. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Nothing. Let's take a walk. And then immediately Kanan's like, what's up, dude? But what's great is Kanan knows how to do the soft touch and getting Ezra, you know, one-on-one. But then immediately he's like, Ezra! (laughs) Right. Here we go. Ezra, you are up to this. It's tough love. It's big brother tough love. It's great. It's great. I mean, Obi-Wan tries this with Anakin. You know, I criticize Obi-Wan for not being delicate enough with Anakin, but if you really watch the Clone Wars and the prequels, episodes two and especially three, Obi-Wan tries to do the same thing. The difference is Obi-Wan, because of Qui-Gon's prophecy and his feeling about Anakin, is ultimately blinded for how dark and evil Anakin is. And to be honest, one of the biggest flaws is not just Hayden Christensen's acting, which is mostly the fault of a much bigger flaw, which is George Lucas's writing for Anakin, but it's never really sold to the audience even though, as I've stated ad nauseum, that Matt Lanter's Anakin, we can all agree, is much more likable and makes a more interesting turn to Vader because he's kind of a likable, honorable guy, uh, uh, unlike the bratty um, and, you know, murderous Anakin. 
but Hayden Christensen tries so hard to project and convince us of his turn to the dark side. It's never really sold, and therefore you can understand why Obi-Wan wouldn't see it coming, even though we as the audience know it's happening. Here's Sabine being a badass. Now, she doesn't just wear the helmet. She doesn't wear the helmet because she's a coward, but she wants to be even though she can't be as good of a fighter as the Jedi, even though later in the series we see her with the with the lightsaber, the dark saber, and she gets some serious Jedi esque training, you know she is as good of a hand to hand fighter with guns and acrobatics, pretty much as as in Kanan. But she does need the jetpack at times. She needs the helmet and, and some of her gadgets and so forth. That's part of what get, makes her powerful. It also sells that she can be a slight, not too giant woman. She just murdered two stormtroopers. On Disney XD, you gotta love it. Uh, you know that you don't have to be Gwendolyn Christie as Phasma to be super power, a super powerful female fighter because of her wiles and her gadgets and her skills and her training. It's great. So there's the spike. Excellent animation. There is a cinematic nature to the first season that I think it's lost in some of the later seasons. I mean, look at this. Shaky cam, beautiful angles, smooth textures. Um, oh, man. So, yeah. I mean, this is the main weapon of the rebellion is, you know, fighting propaganda with propaganda, essentially. Now, obviously, like with Rogue One leading into New Hope, sometimes you just have to get the Death Star plans and blow up the Death Star. But it's also Princess Leia, Mon Mothma, these guys, and even Saw Gerrera, you know, various times in various ways, communicating to the public, so to speak, of the galaxy. And, uh, you know, and getting the message out that there's still hope. And that's ultimately what's so disheartening to them about uh, Gal Travis, voiced by Brent Spiner, who, you know, we see has turned back officially and publicly to the Empire in this episode, even though we already knew he was a traitor. Uh, was so disheartening was that his propaganda was really reaching people like Hera and Ezra, who are idealists. Uh, and for him to just be a, a plant, like a sleeper, uh, not a sleeper, but, you know, an Imperial um, uh, propaganda spy to manipulate the rebellion is very disheartening. And that's ultimately why they, these guys have to, as I mentioned previously, have to join up with the actual rebellion. They can't do this on their own physically or otherwise. Right. I'll be right behind you. We know where this is going. The long luck. They shut the door. Yeah, we know exactly where this is going. And you know, we already know Ezra worships Kanan. I mean, you know, his conversation with Yoda a couple episodes ago showed it, but this locks it in. And that's why at the beginning of season three, Ezra goes kind of crazy. He has too much responsibility, too much power, and Kanan is, you know, blinded, spoiler alert, and kind of neglecting Ezra, and he has to come back into the picture to get Ezra grounded. As long as Kanan's here as his therapist, slash mentor, slash brother, slash father figure, Ezra's fine. And that's what Obi-Wan was unable to do. Uh, it's interesting to think, uh, you know, what if the age gap between Obi-Wan and Anakin was greater? Like, if Obi-Wan had died and Qui-Gon had lived to mentor Anakin, it probably would be the same result because of the prophecy and just Anakin's ultimate darkness and, and evil and, and Palpatine's plans. Um, the other thing to consider is 
you know, Ezra sort of slowly powers up against, you know, this guy, the Inquisitor, this is a great fight, you know, kicking and, and slashing. Um, he's to, to the point where when he meets Maul at the end of season two, and then again in season three, he's kind of ready for the dark side. But since Vader and Palpatine aren't specifically manipulating, uh, Ezra the way that Anakin is being manipulated by Palpatine and his minions in the prequels, it gives Ezra a little extra time. Now I've compared Ezra to Ray and obviously we sort of see them, you know, quote unquote, grow up and, and train up and power up together just in terms of our experience, you know, from the, in the Disney purchase era of them being the two main Jedi characters, one on TV and one in the films. Ezra has way more training, starts way younger, has someone like Kanan, you know, Luke can barely train Rey, but Rey has a much more solid center even than Ezra. Ezra's more centered than either Skywalker, I think. Um, you know, Luke Luke really only avoids the dark side because Vader's his dad. If Vader was just a Sith Lord and you think at the end of the return of the Jedi and he threatens Leia and Palpatine's there and the rebel fleets going down, he probably doesn't throw down the lightsaber and says, you've lost your majesty. I'm not going to fight you. Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, who knows? But that's my, that's how I read it. But Ray, Ray is just instinctively a good person and centered. And it's really interesting that the sort of dark PG-13 Star Wars Jedi heroine, Ray is in some ways a more simple uh, and straightforward, incorruptible, uncorruptible good guy than Ezra, who's on Disney XD and a cartoon on the Disney TV network. And that's why, you know, this is the best Padawan-Master relationship because it's so developed, it's so complicated. Ezra is a really, really complicated character. Um, Now, here's Tarkin with the helmet, which is great. It's like George Bush, you know, mission accomplished on the aircraft carrier three weeks into the Iraq campaign. That didn't go so well. Um you know it's probably just because he's got some armor on it's probably just because his troops insisted on it he probably doesn't give a fuck the mutton chops that kick that callus has you know w- with the helmet that covers the mutton chops is it's just great physical facial design up oh, here it is i forgot it came this early the ezra bridger transmission or whatever they call it which you know i've criticized that his parents he's obsessed with his parents and then they end up being alive, but then they die, but they hear the transmission. I totally get from a sort of poetic literary standpoint, what they were going for. And so I'm okay with it. It does make it more heartbreaking. And this is a great way to give us a little bit of hope as, as the watcher and us rooting for the rebellion. As we get to the final couple episodes of the season, because you know, this takes place before Rogue One, and we've got characters like Tark, Tarkin, and, and Saws coming up, and here goes the tower, ba ba boom, too late. As one, right? The message of unity gets out, too late. Too late, Tarkin. Right, you do not know what it takes to win a war, says Tarkin. I do. I was saying earlier, it's it was fun to meet Tar- young Tarkin in the Clone Wars, already being groomed and manipulated by, the, by Palpatine. But he's already in on it. Right, people already heard it. This is totally like, you know, Jen sending the message and being like, Cassie being like, did you think anyone's listening? And she says, I, I think, you know, I, I think so or whatever. Um, 
And so the message does get out. And so now it's a matter of rescuing Canaan and then getting to uh, the rebellion. Um, but it's important to have people like Tarkin and Saw, even though Saw doesn't come in Rebels, I don't think till season three, as sort of the glue. Obviously, Vader comes in and out. I love the Grand Inquisitor's design um, and just how menacing he is. And, and the comic books really explore, uh, you know, the fact that there's a lot of Inquisitors and they are powerful, but they're not nearly as powerful as Vader, um, either as fighters or especially as force users. And, you know, Vader really resents them. And I won't talk about it too much here. I've done a comic books podcast with Jedi Geek Girl, and I'll probably do more in the future. But needless to say, the Emperor is constantly testing Vader by sending Inquisitors and non-Force using lightsaber um, you know, wielders and all sorts of people, and even Tarkin, who sort of politically try and take him down, constantly sending people at Vader to take him down, you know, to kill him, to, to, to knock him down a peg, and so forth, uh, you know, which is just a Sith way of, you know, trial by fire, and only the strongest survive, and why Vader has no hesitation with Luke in Empire Strikes Back, it really starts to make sense when he immediately offers for them to work together to take down the Empire and rule the galaxy together. Um, and so forth, but we do get more of the Inquisitors in the comics, and and certainly uh, it's fun when we get some more of the Inquisitors in Season 2, so I hope you enjoy that uh, call to action. I am going to jump immediately to the second-to-last episode of the season, A Rebel Resolve, um, as this story continues, and we see Kanan get tortured, you know, like tracking devices, and droid torture, people torture uh, of good guys is also a mainstay of Star Wars, whether it's kid cartoons or PG-13 movies. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Join me for uh, future commentaries. May the Force be with you. And for now, the Bizzle is out. <laughs> 